Greetings from Kiev, y'all. I'm your host, the one and only Terrell Starr, and welcome to another episode of Black Diplomats. I can only imagine the thoughts that you all have about what's happening here in Ukraine. Western media are reporting that the worst can happen, that a Russian attack on Ukrainian soil is all but likely. And that, honestly, is a strong possibility because Russia has more than 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian eastern border. Making things even more gloomy is the fact that NATO and the White House just responded formally to Putin's demands to end his aggression against Ukraine, namely that NATO removed troops from former Warsaw Pact nations and promising that Ukraine will never join NATO. Demands that Western diplomats said from the beginning were non-starters. One of the main subjects on a lot of folks' mind here in Ukraine is how Germany, the EU, and NATO's most powerful member is acting in negotiations with Moscow. For example, Germany recently blocked NATO ally Estonia from sending military aid to Ukraine, according to the Wall Street Journal. In Berlin's recent pledge to send 5,000 military helmets to Ukraine as signs of support were received with humor and frustration. One local journalist tweeted, uh, that's cute. And Kiev's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, called it a joke. Of all of NATO's allies in the alliance, Germany's role in the diplomatic role between the West and Moscow has been the most scrutinized. And according to two experts that I'm interviewing today, the most misunderstood and oversimplified. Here to bring some much needed context to Germany's role in the West diplomatic efforts are Sarah Pagun, a researcher on Russian foreign and security policy. She is an associate fellow with the German Council on Foreign Relations and is writing her doctoral thesis on Russian influence abroad. Joining her is Janis Klube, a senior associate at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, where he focuses on economic development and trade in Eastern Europe and Eurasia, the Russian state budget, sanctions, and Russian domestic politics. I have to admit that I, I honestly, I learned a great deal from these two, and I'm sure you will as well. All right, let's get into it. All right, guys, so Giannis and Sarah, greetings. Um, I'm in Kiev, and you all are in Berlin, and so... Before we get into all this heavy politics about German and Russian relations and what's going on with Ukraine right now, I just want to ask you both, how are you doing? So, Sarah, just tell me about your day. How's your mental health going? It's Monday. I don't like Mondays. I don't think nobody likes Mondays, but <laughs> yeah. I think for a Monday, I'm doing quite fine. Okay. And Yanis. Yeah, same here, basically. And the week has already started, like the last week ended, or actually, uh, I mean, also the weekend that <laughs> there was some work to do. Uh, I think the same is true for Sarah. At the moment, we are just overwhelmed um, with, um, yeah, with working with the media, you know, uh, doing our job, um, political consulting for politicians and so on. It's yeah, the, I, you know, during the five years that I've been working at SWP, I, I think this is the most, um, yeah, most demanding phase, certainly, uh, in that period of work. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if I'm getting as much media as you all, but here in Kiev, I get a lot, I get requests because I'm here maybe four or five months out of the year. So I'm not just here to cover politics, but I 
I started coming to Ukraine as a Fulbright uh, grantee and back in 2009, and I've still continued to be here. And I have friends here who pretty much function as family. And people often ask me, Terrell, are you safe? Are you here? And I have to tell them I'm not on the front. You know, I'm not in Donbass. I'm in Kiev. And outside, if, if, if you didn't know that there was an ongoing occupation going on, you, you wouldn't know it if you were in Kiev or in most places outside of the front. But, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of anxiety going on here. But generally speaking, people are going about their lives because honestly, what can people do? You know, like what, what can people do? And I tweeted a series of tweets yesterday, just kind of unpacking what I was feeling about being here because, you know, our State Department has begun some evacuation of non-essential staff, you know, this, uh, in the U.S. Embassy, and they have alerted Americans not to travel to Ukraine. And, you know, I was going to start some tours of Americans to come to Ukraine this year. Obviously, that's not going to happen because of what's going on due to our State Department telling Americans not to come. But I had some other businesses that I planned on starting here. But my whole point is that, you know, when you have Russia, particularly this Kremlin, as your neighbor, these are the type of things that you have to deal with. And even whether it's 100,000 troops, 50,000 troops, Putin's geopolitical strategy with Belarus, these things are going to happen. I also, I did a Peace Corps in Georgia. You go to Georgia, Russian troops are occupying South Ossetia, Abkhazia, have been doing so since the 1990s in different ways. So for me, this is just kind of normal, per se. You know, this up and down, because you always have this very aggressive neighbor. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the way I look at it. Germany has been highlighted in the news for a wide range of reasons and, you know, very critically for one, just kind of, you know, the, Germany's um, current administration has been accused of blocking a lot of key NATO moves, particularly, you know, recently with Estonia, you know, wanting to send lethal weapons to Ukraine and Berlin saying no. Um, but then also you have the head, the former head of the German Navy, um, who had to resign, um, and I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, is K. Achim Schombach? Oh, it's quite okay, Schombach, yes. Schombach, yeah, yeah, thank you. He had, you know, according to Politico, he had to resign Saturday after contradicting, um, you know, um, Berlin's government during a panel discussion where he said it was nonsense to believe that Russia would launch an invasion just to integrate a quote-unquote small and tiny strip of Ukrainian soil and that it's easy to give um, Russian President Vladimir Putin the respect that he demands and probably deserves. So there's a whole lot kind of going on with Germany's role in this. And so I just, I'm going to ask you more specific questions. But since the both of you focus on this, um, Sarah, just give me your synopsis of what, of, of the current government's um, um, posture towards the Kremlin 
as it pertains to Ukraine? And then Giannis, I'll get started with you, and I'll ask you. So I think for this for this attitude of the German government towards Ukraine, there are several reasons. And actually, I do not think there's such a big difference to the government we had before. When it comes to Russia, there are some differences, but when it comes to the attitude to Ukraine, I don't think it's, you know, the difference is, is that, that big when it comes to comparing uh, both governments. So the, I think that genuine belief among many German politicians and also within the population is that what they always like say that you cannot solve this conflict militarily. And there is a great, great restraint to act in any way militarily or security policy wise, because people are, you know, people are afraid that will actually stir up tensions and lead to an escalation. And that's to, that's partly also often the, the argument of the German history is used in saying, okay, like we have, like Germany has like this, you know, like this very horrific history where we attacked a lot of uh, European countries, basically most of them, and that, you know, like German foreign policy should now be dedicated dedicated to, you know, like make, make Europe peaceful and, you know, like to, um, to prevent any further escalation. Of course, this, this is way too easy because sometimes you do need to act militarily or security policy wise to, you know, like to de-escalate or prevent further conflict. But still that's a genuine belief among many Germans. Um, and maybe the, the, the second ingredient that comes like that comes into here is that a lot of people really believe that solving this crisis is about dialogue with Russia and they basically neglect the deterrence part of diplomacy towards Russia. So I think it's all about um, talking all about dialogue, all about you know, like keeping like negotiation permits open. Um, so, and then of course, there's also, and I think also other factors, but I think they're less important, you know, when it comes to German-Russian networks, you know, like Schroeder, Nord Stream 2, that kind of, um, that kind of stuff also when it comes to um, other economic um, ties, also to um, ties in civil society, um, but I really think that this belief in like this general belief in solving crisis non-militarily is what now troubles German foreign policy because we're basically not able to to really have a dual track approach towards Russia with negotiations on one hand and deterrence on the other hand that's at the moment or that has been very very difficult over the last um, two to three decades in Germany. Giannis. Yeah, I, I think I agree with um, with everything that Sarah said. I, you know, I maybe I would add that German Germany's foreign policies, um, you know, there's still a strong legacy from uh, from the just the period after the Cold War, the 1990s, 2000s, which were shaped by you know a very strong optimism about uh, what you know what also Russia could become. You know, this 
paradigm of transition, trans transitioning towards democracy and uh, just, you know, a, a constructive member of the international community. And it's very, very difficult for Germany to let go from this vision still. Um, and, you know, the, the reason for this is that in a world where, um, where countries are moving towards market economies, you know, sticking to, uh, to rules and, you know, are solving their conflicts peacefully, Germany is a very strong actor. And, you know, we, you know, we can develop economic relations. And for us, it's, you know, it's the comfortable mode of foreign policy is to have foreign policy and economic policy in sync, you know, to, to expand sort of uh, our contacts in all directions. Um, and, and this is so comfortable and so, you know, was so good also economically for Germany that there's a certain degree of denial about what is going on, a denial about that, um, that really insecurity is, has, has returned to Europe. This has been going on for a long time and we remember the Georgia war and then we had 2014 and so on. So this is actually not new. But um, yeah, from the German perspective, these were, you know, sort of local things that could be handled and, and quieted and, and, you know, and dealt with. And um, that there is a fundamental conflict of interest between Russia about the security order in, in, in Europe and, you know, the, the West and also Germany, of course. This is now becoming more and more clear, but, you know, the German government at the moment is not ready to to you know, to 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 have a appropriate response to it, and this is also, of course, due to the fact that um, all three governing parties are, to some degree, uh, divided uh, on this, and that the new administration is not really doesn't really have a long experience yet. You know, so I think the communication channels within the government are not established yet, and uh, this is why or we sort of back and forth also in the last weeks. Uh, for example, from 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 Chancellor Scholz, uh, for example, on the Nord Stream issue. Um, and you know, with regards to sanctions, um, so 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 I think that you know, I think that Germany has a very particular view on um, on on how these uh, yeah these years after the Cold War, you know, what they were meant to develop into, and and we are, we are still very hesitant, uh, you know, to let that go. And um, and yeah, besides um, yeah, everything that Sarah mentioned about you know, the, the historically grounded aversion towards any military activity and the belief that the only solution, only way to peace actually is to uh, demilitarize the whole world. I think this is actually, it's very deeply, you know, deep in the belief of many Germans that, you know, arms only cause problems and arms never solve problems. And um, while this may be true, and if you, you know, if everybody was uh, signing up for it, um, you know, it, it's obviously not true um, uh, when one country, you know, doesn't believe in it and, and uses arms to pursue its interests uh, in the European neighborhood. Right. So, you know, I, I get so this is some important context. And, um, it, you know, when you say this, it's also to a certain extent reminds me of Japan. Right. You know, um, <clears throat> where there was a diff there, there was a complete different course of action in regards to military Right. You know, I, and, and so because, you know, of course, obviously the Japanese Imperial, um, you know, Imperial Japan and and their role in World War Two, um, there's not the same thing, but there are similar conversations about the use of force um, as it pertains to them. What I'm interested in is that this. I'm, I want to dig more into the public, the public culture around supporting a more muscular approach towards Moscow I was going on Twitter and I saw this thread 
um, by a guy named, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Marcel Dursus. Dursus, yeah. And then there is someone else who quote tweeted him who said that basically it was just a little more than 30 years ago where the Soviet Union occupied half of Germany. Right. And so that memory is still, you know, um, that memory is still there. Right. And so they and then there's but but also what I see in regards to this kind of non-military approach, Russia, this there's this conversation about, yeah, we need to talk with Russia and continue the dialogue. But but the Kremlin keeps on attacking them, particularly through disinformation. I'm looking at a March report in in Reuters where it says that Germany, and I'm reading from this uh, Reuters um, article, it says Germany is a top target of Russian disinformation campaigns in the European Union, according to a report. And it, it basically hit new lows after the poisoning and the jailing of, of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. We all know he's in prison now. Um, and so this EU watchdog basically said that it had documented at the time um, some 700 cases of deliberate or fake and misleading reporting that was aimed to spread disinformation about Germany. Um, and this is since they launched a database back in 2015. And that compares to 300 cases for France, 170 for Italy and 40 for Spain. But this is back in March. And so there's this attitude of continuing to dialogue, but the attacks are still taking place. And so we know that the new government there is new. Um, but do you think that there will eventually be a shift to providing a more muscular or a more aggressive approach towards the Kremlin? Because right now, like I said, you know, Berlin is even blocking arms deals through through, through NATO um, in order to arm Ukraine. So, Sarah, I know you want to jump in. So maybe like let's let's uh, like let's split this up in different parts. So maybe yeah. the first the misinformation question, and I don't think it's you know it's surprising that. Germany is such a such an important target for Russian disinformation because Germany is very important for upholding you know European consensus on Russia policy, especially when it comes to sanctions. Russians were really, really, really trying hard to to target the German sanction policy because they know that as soon as Germany um, you know doesn't support it anymore or at least, you know, like starts criticizing it or not believing in it anymore, that European sanction policy will probably fall apart. So, and that's also true for a lot of other um, policy areas. So I'm, I'm not really surprised by that. And then maybe like, you know, when we, when we talk about why Germany is not ready to, um, to support Ukraine military with, with arms deals, for example, I think, it's not only about this military part, but it's about you know basic support for Ukraine because we could also talk about Nord Stream too. That's not military, but you know that it's it's basically the same constellation where we you know like where we're pursuing interest or when Germany pursues its interests on the expense of Ukraine towards Moscow. And I think that is to uh, because we were talking about how Germany you know interprets its own history and applies it to contemporary politics, it's a very specific interpretation, which basically focuses a lot on Moscow and Russia because it, Germany feels responsible um, towards the Soviet Union, but it equalizes Soviet Union and Russia. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. And because when you, you like, if you would talk to average people on the street, 
you know, they would talk about Russia and they would talk about Moscow and totally forget about the fact that, you know, like Ukraine was also part of Soviet Union, all the Baltics or Belarus, and that even, you know, like the losses these countries had were to a certain extent even, you know, like bigger than what's today's Russia. That's kind of like very German perception on focusing um, on Russia. And that explains a lot of, you know, a lot of ways how Germany or also like the German population, also to a certain extent, German politicians see, you know, contemporary policy towards Eastern Europe in Germany. And it's and it's also and that's that's only a part of German society. I don't think that's a majority. I was going to ask, I was going to follow up and ask you that. Yeah. 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 But there's also like, you know, like parts of the population. It's I don't think it's a majority, not at all. But, you know, like you also like question kind of like Ukrainian sovereign like nationhood or, or, or statehood, basically, because they say, OK, you know, like it's, it's some kind of Russian influence. So that's OK for us. So, you know, like they don't really accept the fact that or they don't really see the fact that Ukraine is a nation of its own and it, you know, like it needs to be protective for, for some Germans is, you know, it's kind of like, you know, like, let's give it to a Russian influence zone. And that's like a sentiment in the German population that, again, I said it's not a majority, but... What about amongst their ruling elite, though? What is about the political elite? I think that's a different question. It depends. No. Like, not if you look at the extreme, like, you know, at the ends of the political spectrum, like Die Linke or AFD, you find this kind of thinking. Explain the AFD and Die Linke, because a lot of us don't know what those groups are. So the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, is, is like the right-wing populist, partly also extremist party that has been gaining votes and attention after the um, refugee crisis, 2015, 2016. They're like far right. And the left is um, is kind of like a, like a quite left party that grew out of the uh, former GDR state party that's still quite popular in um, in Eastern Germany, but loses traction actually a lot. And those are like when it comes to Russia, like the extreme ends. Um, you won't find these kind of thinking. I just explained a lot in let's call it like mainstream party that it's. That's very rare, but you find it at the end, and you also find it in German and among the German population. Yanis, go ahead. Yeah, I think um, you know there are different degrees um, of this issue that Sarah just described, and I would say that some, to some degree, you might also find it in the established parties. There are definitely politicians in the Bundestag which are not, I mean, AfD and not uh, from the left. Um, that are subscribing to these kind of um, notions, um, unfortunately. So I mean. And this is probably normal that parties have, you know, their sort of extreme voices sometimes, but but they they do exist. Um, you know, I wanted to get back to your question. You know, will will Germany ever have a, a more muscular approach? And I just wanted to, uh, first of all, I think um, it's becoming more muscular. Actually, um, with Russia, it's a you know very special issue. But if we look back at the last, uh, let's say, twenty years, there has been some you know quite significant development. There were some like milestones for Germans activities abroad, also military involvement in Kosovo, that was a huge milestone uh, back also, you know, with the Green Foreign Minister, by the way. Um, and then also, you know, support, for example, for the Peshmerga, the Iraqi Kurds in, in, you know, 2014, when we sent arms into a crisis, which we now say we don't for, you know, out of principle. <laughs> 
um, so I mean, there there has been some development. Russia is you know a special issue, but I just wanted also to to say that um, you know a couple of decades ago, you know European neighbors, you know like the UK for example, or when we had the reunification of Germany, they didn't really want a muscular Germany. So this is sort of also a role that Germany grew into because you know it was there were actually some worries that you know, Germany became too big and too powerful again if it reunites. And, and so, you know, Germany sort of grew into this role of being an economic player mainly. And um, I think that, uh, you know, also within NATO, there is a possibility of, um, even despite this reluctance uh, with regards to military, uh, let's say, equipment to Ukraine and, and, and arms and so on, maybe there's a perspective for some uh, division of labor where Germany uses its economic might to, you know, provide some credibility sanctions and um, and does not itself deliver arms, you know, but um, we are also at the moment, I think, you know, this is sort of going on, but it's also not, not credible enough at the moment, I think. So um, I wouldn't expect Germany to sort of, um, you know, turn its policies uh, upside down in the next years. It's just, it's a process that will take time. And the Germans are not used to the fact that foreign policy can cost money. And, uh, and this sort of has to sink in over time uh, that, you know, with regards to Nord Stream 2, this is one issue, but, you know, there are many other, you know, that, that you have to invest in the military. This is a long, very long, you know, discussion in Germany, which has committed to the 2% goal of NATO, but, you know, has for, for years and years not met it. And it's not planning to met it, frankly, in the next year. So, I mean, uh, there's a, this is sort of, a, for, for Germany, foreign policy was mainly free. It was actually also, as I said, it was going hand in hand with economic interests. And this, that, that these, these both interests collide, this is something new and this is very challenging. Um, and uh, we are all, I mean, including Sarah and me working to, you know, getting that across. But uh, um, yeah, it's just um, it's a, a very, very strong belief that um, it doesn't have to be that way. And that we find a way which is, uh, let's say, less costly, where we find a way, especially where we avoid confrontation. We don't have to choose sides so clearly um, because it's bad for us. We're trading with everybody. So we don't want to choose sides, you know, because we, uh, you know, it, it will create tensions with our important trading partners. And um, so this is a process which will take many, you know, many years. It's probably going to take a generation. I think at some point um, Germany might develop in that direction. But for now, I think from the perspective of NATO, it would be the best to get the maximum out of, you know, the, the current state of, of Germany's ability to act uh, in foreign policy, which is providing credibility for sanctions and, and you know, uh, instrumentalizing its economic ties to also and create some, some pressure. So I mean, um, yeah, this is this is my take on on the future of a muscular approach uh, from Germany. Yeah, I, I wanted. Yeah, so I want. I was going to go to Nord Stream too, but you said a couple of things that I think are kind of important to flesh out a bit, particularly dealing with uh, you know trade. So <clears throat> so much of this seems economic, and in my opinion, you know, I I'm a I'm a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council in in um, Washington. And several of my colleagues have called for a, um, a reworking of the current sanctions that the U.S. has right now. And you all could tell me if I'm right or wrong about this. But um, for one, I think that the U.S. sanctions regime against Russia, again, like it's expired, you know, like they've, they've over, they don't, they're no longer as useful as they were, you know, back, you know, back in 2013, 2014, 2015. 
um, and they do need to be strengthened. But the also, but but another issue is that when you have people like Gerhard Schroeder, right? The perception that we have in the West is that you have somebody like that that goes to you that goes to Russia, serves on the board of a gas company, right? You know, and he's getting paid. Last time I checked. Uh, the number was around five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand dollars per year just to serve at the head of that board. And you have, you know, this is not Germany, but you had the Austrian, um, somebody from the Austrian forum. I think it was foreign minister, foreign ministry went on to uh, serve in, 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 with, um, you know, in the German gas industry as well. But it's, but you know, you have several German figures who are doing this, and so there is this perception that it ultimately is about money, and that this that is also an issue. I mean, that sounds simplistic, Sarah, but um, I think it does go to the larger conversation of a, how much does trade have to do with Germany's reluctance, not just now, but even before during Angela Merkel's, um, chancellery. And then does that inform any reluctance from the Europeans to carry out their own sanctions regime? Cause they can carry out their own without the U S what well, they can't. I mean, they technically can, but usually they probably wouldn't. But the whole point of it is that I say that because ultimately it's European soil that that Russia can literally roll tanks into, not the U.S. I mean, because we're protected by waters. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. So, um, OK, so I think like maybe like a general statement before I start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I gave you a lot. I, I like. I agree with you to like to a certain extent, but you mm -hmm. like also like I think from the US side, um, we have to acknowledge that for Europeans it's much more costly to sanction Russia. So I also like to see the like the different like the difference in willingness to sanction Russia is also linked to the costs that the sanctioning countries will bear because that is a lot greater in Europe. But besides that yes, I do agree with you that Russia plays it very cleverly. They're basically buying in former politicians, not only in Germany, but all across Europe. You can look like to Austria, to France, to many, to many countries and trying to, to influence political discussions. When you look more to Central Eastern Europe, I think it's more about gaining economic influence and economic traction because economic ties are even, um, even greater and that influence politics. And when you come to maybe like Germany or Western Europe, it's more about, you know, like basically buying former politicians or influential um, politics to, um, to wield influence. That's definitely a problem. And I think that what, what makes it hard for Germans to acknowledge that is again, this Ostpolitik paradigm. So links, connections, networks, where for like decades seen as an asset, you know, and in wielding influence yourself, you know, like um, making Russia more democratic or, you know, like more open. And that's still how many people see it. And they neglect to acknowledge that nowadays, it actually doesn't work that well anymore in this direction. So towards Russia, it works way better the other direction around and that these linkages, whether political or economical, are actually no risks and not that much more, like not that much more uh, chances anymore. So I think that's um, 
that support problem. And if you if you like, if you ask me personally, when we look at cases such as Gerhard Schröder, we definitely lead, you know, like laws, regulations to prevent this happening. You know, it's like for me, we would like if you ask me, we would need a German law that actually prohibits it for their uh, former chancellors, also presidents, um, to you know basically become part of a board or even head of a board or chair of a board um, in these kind of companies such as Gazprom or uh, Rosneft. So that that's something that we should do maybe even on the European level, because as I said, it's also a problem in other European countries, because, but still again, I think because of this Ostpolitik notion, like you, you can't kill it. It's like a zombie. Whenever you think, okay, we finally overcome this kind of stands up again. And I think we need really need to to turn this perception and also to introduce regulations in this area. Giannis. Yeah, I fully agree. We need those kind of rules. Um, and not just because uh, these um, former politicians, which serve for Rosneft, Gazprom and so on, they have some you know, influence for and they basically do you know lobby work for for big foreign business which you know is a state business so basically for a foreign government indirectly you know you have to call it by its name Gerhard is basically working for the Russian government um you know when he's working for for Rosneft which is majority owned by the Russian government um not only because there is certain influence which uh you know just is a major issue but also because um the it sort of takes away the legitimacy of Western democracy, also from the Russian perspective, if you can just buy, you know, former chancellors and other former politicians that, you know, it basically shows maybe also to the Russian, I don't know how they perceive it, but um, it basically demonstrated the whole world, look, you know, they are as corrupt as we are. So, you know, there is no real democracy anywhere. And um, I, I mean, Maybe this is something that to some degree can also be resolved if the if the discourse in Germany moves on, because uh, there are still people also in the SPD, so the governing party would defend Gerhard Schröder, um, because they, you know, there there is still sort of um, because Russia has, you know, is using ambiguity and ambivalence so much in its foreign policy. You know, it's communicating very different things at the same time. Like right now, it's communicating, okay, on the one hand, there will be a, a military reaction. On the other hand, they're saying, no, we will never intervene or we never invade and nobody is threatened by us. Uh, this sort of um, uh, is a fertile ground for very different interpretations of what Russia is up to. And this basically enables, you know, somebody who doesn't want to believe that Russia is up to, you know, uh, to, 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 I don't know, to an invasion, something like this, to just have enough statements and enough sort of their empirical evidence to back it up. And as long as Russia, you know, is, is you know, can maintain this ambiguous or this, you know, this possibility to see it differently if you just want to, you know, through its propaganda and through its official statements, um, you know, you will find people in Germany who will defend, uh, you know, what, what, what Gerhard Schröder, for example, was doing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to go into Nord Stream 2 right now. So for those who are listening, you know, the pipeline has been complete, but right now it's held up because uh, the Swiss um, pretty much owned company has to uh, give over its assets to a German subsidiary, right, um, in order for it to be certified. And so that process has um, has stalled. But 
there were people who, you know, especially Ukraine out here, Ukraine obviously uh, didn't want the pipeline to go through. There are a number of U.S. Polit- U.S. elected officials in Congress who also didn't want it to go through simply because they felt like it was rewarding um, the Kremlin, Putin, um, for for not being a, um, you know, for, for, for all the actions that we discussed during this podcast. But um, can we just, uh, so, so Sarah, do you mind kind of getting into the gas politics of this all? Because, you know, people, we don't understand here the dependency, uh, well, in the States especially, you don't really understand how Germany depends on um, Russian gas and what what and what are the real concerns if the Kremlin says that we're just going to cut off the valves? Because I think that there are a lot of reactions here, but we don't really understand from a German perspective what it would mean. So in general, like Russia is the biggest single gas importer in Germany and its importance for the gas market is even bigger when you look to Central Eastern European countries. Of course, it Russia is not that important when you look at, you know, like the energy mix, I don't know, in Spain, for example. So it's, of course, something, you know, that the, the far the far you go east, the more important it becomes naturally, because there you have like a, a pipeline system uh, in place. When it comes to Nord Stream 2, it's actually not, you know, if you say it's, increasing the dependency, that's maybe a bit simplistic because basically it's not to import more gas, but only to import it via a different pipeline system, meaning circumventing Ukraine. So now um, for Russia, you know, like delivering gas to Europe depends on on Ukraine. And and that was a problem for Russia. So for example, back in 2008 or in other Russian and Ukrainian gas disputes, if Russia turned off the gas for Ukraine, it was also a problem for its trade with Europe. Because, you know, like Europe is also on the, on the same pipeline system. So in constructing Nord Stream 2, it's actually not about increasing dependency in terms of increasing delivery volumes, but in circumventing Ukraine. So that's that that's a part of it. Of course, you can argue, and I think that that's a valid argument, if you buy a pipeline, you know, it should at least be functioning for about 40 years to be paid off. So of course, if we build a new pipeline right now, we're also kind of making decisions on how our energy mix will look like in, you know, like in 30, 35 years. And that's of course also, you know, questionable when you think about German or European um, green energy policy, because we actually want to become, you know, like less, um, dependent on carbon fuels, but we're actually, you know, like projecting the same amount of dependency that we have right now, possibly into the future. So I think that's, you know, like that's, that's a conflict. And if you take a look at, you know, the, the German debate on Nord Stream 2, it was, so basically Nord Stream 2 or the approval of Nord Stream 2 in 2015 was out of a mix of reasons of coalition bargaining between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, the Social Democrats really pushing for the project, a bargaining with um, state prime ministers, so the German federal states, especially in, um, in Eastern Germany, who really wanted the project. Also, of course, like um, lobbying from, like, from the 
um, participating companies, but also, for example, from Gerd Schröder. So that was kind of like the reason for the project. And in the end, the debate never really, at least in Germany, um, got to the core of the security effects for Europe and Ukraine. It was always about, you know, like securing gas and or making it making gas prices lower or something like that. But there was never really a, you know like a valid discussion on the implications for you know for greater European um, security or energy security policy. That only came up after Trump really started opposing the project and threatening with sanctions. And then interestingly, it was again never really discussed in the German public debate in terms of Ukrainian security, but then in terms of, you know, standing up to American pressure, standing up to, I don't know, Americans or telling us what to do, especially as Trump was so insanely unpopular in Germany. So, you know, like it was, if you, if you again, if you would ask the average German on the street about, you know, like what's the point of Nord Stream? So why, you know, why it is so, so critically debated, why, why is it so vital? People probably wouldn't tell you anything about Ukraine. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, uh, there are several illusions about Nord Stream 2 in Germany, which are just, you know, it's, uh, they have been there and it's a big major PR success also by Nord Stream that they have been created. And the first illusion is that Nord Stream 2 is about additional gas. Uh, and as Sarah said, it is not. I mean, Nord Stream 2 will make Russian gas more competitive in Germany because it's a, you know, the, the, it's a shorter way. It is, you know, it's a, it's a more, you know, more direct way to the source of the gas. So, I mean, it, there is a marginal effect because it doesn't have to be, you know, they take the, the detour through Ukraine, so to say, it's coming from the north, staying in the north and, you know, going to northern Germany. Um, but overall, it you know it, it, it there's plenty of course of of capacity to import even much more gas than we are importing now. So this is um, it's basically a fake argument. But it's 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 still it's the common belief is that Nord Stream two is about our you know securing our gas supply and um, and also facilitating um, the energy vendor so the, the the energy turn, which means you know getting uh, emis emitting less uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, because um, you also have to consider that you know, because Germany wants to exit nuclear power, uh, pipeline gas from Russia is actually the most, or not just from Russia, just pipeline gas is the most, uh, the greenest fossil fuel uh, actually that, you know, that is available to Germany. And this is also why um, it has for a very long time be framed as, you know, been framed as something good. So we have even increased our dependencies by switching the heating from oil or other source of energy to gas. Gas was you know, the, the way to go in the last years. And now what we're seeing is that Germany's green ambitions are conflicting with, uh, with energy sovereignty. So with the ability to, to have a, a sovereign foreign policy, basically, because we have this dependency. And it's also, um, you know, you can't probably discuss uh, different scenarios, but I would say, um, at least right now, the dependency is real in the way that if Russia wants to, it can make apartments in Germany go cold. And this is, um, and this is probably, I mean, it's the only, you know, dependency of, of this kind that we have from Russia, I believe. But uh, at the moment, it's there, and it was believed to be something good in Germany in the last years, not something bad, uh, because, um, you know, it's, it's, 
uh, I guess it's re you know, really so strange from a, a US perspective, but uh, be if you believe that um, that interdependency, so that we are dependent on Russia, they are dependent on us, so these closed trade links, if they uh, that they lead to more peaceful relations, which is sort of a basic thought in the so-called Ostpolitik, so this German approach to the East, um, then it's good to build more pipelines and be more dependent. And, um, you know, uh, and this is why we now suddenly have found ourselves in a situation where we have a, a very pain. I mean, I think we have a painful dependency uh, from on a country which has a big conflict of interest with us. Uh, and, and, um, and we sort of it limits our ability to act in foreign policy. But this is not, you know, this is not shared in the in the, in the public opinion. Um, so, so yeah, this is the, fir the, the first um, sort of, uh, yeah, illusion about Nord Stream 2. The other illusion is that whatever the United States is doing is about them wanting to sell us their LNG. And this is also, it was- Explain what that means, LNG, explain. Uh, yeah. Oh, a liquefied natural gas. So yeah. the US has grown into a, a major exporter of liquefied gas, um, you know, and also to Europe. Uh, and in some way, of course, Russia and the US are competitors because both are exporting gas. Um, and this is why even, you know, even experts uh, in Germany, energy experts, were subscribing to this argument. Yes, Russia is only saying, uh, US is only sanctioning Nord Stream 2 because they want to sell us their gas, despite the fact that, you know, Nord Stream 2 will not lead to additional gas imports from Russia. Uh, and so, so this argument to my and my you know point of view is nonsensical, but it's you know it's a very strong belief that whatever the US does, they do it out of their interests and not out of security motivations. They have their commercial interests and it's all about this. So I mean this is um and this of course when when Trump was there, it was ignored that you know many of these sanctions were actually coming from the Congress and actually coming to constrain yeah. Trump in a way. It was all said, you know, this is Trumpism, he wants to sell us his gas, and this is why he's taking away our. Nord Stream 2. And, uh, you know, this is sort of the thinking in Germany about this. And um, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, because you're right. They were coming from Congress. Yeah, you're completely right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was completely simplified in Germany and misinterpreted. <laughs> and, uh, and and this is still it, it. They made Nord Stream 2. They turned it to sort of a national project, although it's a product of big business eventually. Wow, that's 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 fascinating. I want to end uh, the show by talking about the new um, the recently elected German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I studied Olaf Scholz. Uh, he, yeah, yeah. So, so he is supposed to meet with President Joe Biden in Washington in February. And Politico, there, there is some news basically that Chancellor Scholz turned down an invite from the president, and the White House came back and said that that's not true, and they look forward to visiting him and the reason why shows allegedly turned down the meeting was over the Ukrainian crisis. Can you both talk to us about what you both foresee that relationship being like? Because we don't know who shows is. We don't know this new political dynamic and how this is going to play out for Ukraine, but as well as NATO security. Sarah, you could start off. Yeah. So I think to a certain extent, when it comes to Scholz, um, to Scholz Russia attitude, that's still kind of not clear to me myself. Myself, so I think that for for a social democrat, which are often quite of you know like 
very soft on Russia. I think they're kind of, at the moment, the core problem for Germany's Russia policy and the governing coalition. Um, but he has a quite realistic view on Russia to a certain extent, but that he doesn't, for him, it's, you know, basically not important enough to alienate some of his, you know, like voters and the electorate of the Social Democrats, and that he has kind of a, kind of a dual track approach with Baerbock of the Greens because the Greens are, you know, like much more hawkish when it comes to Russia. So that they, they kind of agreed on this split thing towards um, um, towards Russia, something that also um, former Chancellor Merkel and former Foreign Minister um, Frank-Walter Steinmeier did like back in 2014, 15, 16. Um, so that's, that's my personal, so that's my personal take on him. But if you, what I think is much more worrying are other voices that are coming from the Social Democrats, for example, their new uh, Secretary General, Kevin Kunat, who doesn't really have a record in foreign policy. He made some quite strong statements um, on Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream Russia. And there you can really see and really illustrate the, as Yana said before, like the misperception of what Russia really is and what Russia is willing to do in its foreign policy, but also like internal wise when it comes to the Russian opposition of them. Um, so I think that's a, that's a core problem, actually. But again, so Charles' personal attitude is hard to get because he's very cautious on his statement. It's more like other people out of the, like, out of the social democratic court uh, party that are making strong statements. Yanis. I think of Olaf Scholz as somebody uh, with a sort of similar character to Angela Merkel, uh, minus the experience and the understanding of Russia. Uh, so, so of course, Angela Merkel, she had a very good understanding just also because she was understanding the language, but also because she was you know, coming from Eastern Germany, um, um, you know, from a particular family and so on. So she had a very personal understanding of the situation of Putin and um, Scholz doesn't yet. But Scholz is very, he still is a very conservative person. He's also, you know, has shares this uh, non-emotional approach to politics that Merkel also had. And he's, I think he's not going to engage in any wild experiments. So this is, I think this is good. Um, I think that he doesn't have a lot of experience uh, with Russia. There were some just, uh, yeah, just some statements over the last months where, you know, that, that if you looked at them, it, that they sounded like he was doing something crazy, but I think in the end it was not happening. For example, there, there was talk of a qualified restart with Russia which sounds like um, it could be a, a risky experiment that he engages in, but uh, I, you know, he never, um, you know, he, he, he never followed up on that. So I think this was sort of, he had some, also he had a statement in the summer where he said, we need a new Ostpolitik, also something that keeps coming up in the discussion. I think um, I, I, I just see that he doesn't have a really, you know, streamlined communication on Russia yet. And this to me, uh, you know, says that he is, he, he is also, he's lacking experience and he's still shaping his, um, his way to deal with the situation. Um, there's maybe one uh, positive, which is uh, a positive thing, which is here, there's a, the head of the chancellery, Kanzleramtsminister is Wolfgang Schmidt. 
um, you know, uh, so he is um, he's somebody who has a lot of experience with Russia. So he, he could bring something to the table that, for example, Merkel had before. And um, so and overall, I'm, I'm not too pessimistic with regard to Olaf Scholz's position um, and how it's going to develop in the next months. I think he has very little time and has to, you know, get it, you know, get things straight um, quickly. Um, and of course, he has to also consider some sentiments in his party. So he cannot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be. I, I think he could have a position similar to Merkel in the end. Um, so this, yeah, this critical dialogue, so to say. Um, but yeah, it will take a couple of more months, I think, for him to really find his own role and his own language, um, how he you know, addresses Russia and how he wants to deal with the situation. And, but overall, I'm not too pessimistic. I don't worry about him as much as I, yeah, as Sarah said, worry about um, other actors in the government. Um, for example, about the uh, about Mützenich, the head of the SPD um, uh, section in the Bundestag. Um, you know, there are some others who, where you, you know, who really have an interest in the issue and have, have have their positions, and where you would worry that they, you know, could go in the in the wrong direction. But with Scholz, I think you no, know, I'm basically I'm I'm still optimistic. Okay, well, both thank you both very much, Sarah and Giannis, for coming on to the show. I've always wanted to get people, um, some experts from Germany who understand Russia to give their perspective because there were a lot of perceptions that we had about uh, Germany's attitude towards Russia, including my own. And you gave a lot of context that would help me to explain to my listeners and who, 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 uh, who are asking about the geopolitics of of berlin so you you've been invaluable uh to me directly as an expert myself so thank you both very much i appreciate it thank you very much for the invitation terrell yeah thanks terrell it was great being on the podcast thanks a lot i don't know about y'all but i learned so much new information about russian german relations from Giannis and sarah one of the reasons why I prefer the interview format of podcasting over just straight commentary, besides the fact that I'm a professionally trained journalist, is that I get to learn from other bright minds and I get to share that information with y'all. But um, I need some help to better help me keep this knowledge coming and at a very critical period in which Russia is ramping up its aggression against Ukraine, I'm going to need y'all's support. My producer, Michael, and I are working really hard to keep these episodes coming each week, and we want to improve on them. So if you can kindly go to Black Diplomats Patreon and support us there, I'd greatly appreciate it. And you can also go to your favorite podcast platform, preferably iTunes, and leave a five-star review. Those reviews really help with the algorithm and get the podcast noticed. And I'm also on the socials. So please follow me on Twitter at Russian underscore star and on Instagram at Terrell J star. That's star with two R's on both handles. Thank you again so much for tuning in and talk to y'all next week.